I'd like to speak this evening some about what we're doing, what we're doing here together. I was uh, visiting a friend some time ago, and I was very happy on arriving. My friend welcomed me there. I hadn't seen him for a long time, and uh, he brought out a box with a big smile on his face, and it was a box of Belgian chocolate. And uh, some people say I shouldn't really tell the story to people on retreat because it involves something which they might want and can't have. But I think it's a really good story, so anyway, you'll hopefully forgive me. Um, but my friend brought out this box of chocolates and he said, this is a really interesting box of chocolates. He showed it to me. And it had on it instructions for their use, which was slightly puzzling since most of us, and some of you look puzzled too, yes, most of us think we would know exactly what to do with a box of chocolates. We wouldn't need too many instructions. But nonetheless, there they were, instructions. So we looked at them and thought, well, I guess we could follow them. It said, turn off the television. (laughs) Put away your newspaper. Sit down in a comfortable chair with yourself or a friend and open the box. Look upon the finely crafted, handmade Belgian praline chocolates that have been made for your exquisite satisfaction and pleasure. Then select one and place it upon your tongue. Don't chew it. Allow the warmth from your tongue to begin to melt the chocolate. Savour the aroma. And as it softens, slowly chew. But don't swallow too quickly. Allow the molten chocolate to trickle down the back of your throat. (laughs) And if you wish, select another. As you can perhaps guess, we did. But what was remarkable is that we really followed these instructions, and you you can tell this was meditation instructions for eating chocolate. But my friend commented as we were on the second or maybe third, said, you know, normally you never really taste the chocolate. And it really struck a chord. It was like so easily, when we, even when we have something that we could really appreciate and really enjoy, we sort of rush through it in the, in the midst of so many other things. And we maybe notice the first bite or the first taste. Or maybe we're busy worrying about whether we chose the right one whether we really should have gone for that one or whether it'll still be there or whether my friend's going to get it. I don't know if that happens for you with a box of chocolates. But I've certainly had that go on. And you don't even enjoy the one you're eating because you're busy wondering how many more of them you can have and at which point it's actually greed and not just a sort of legitimate pleasure. This process of bringing a real quality of care of presence and of attention to our experience. This is what we're learning to do here. This is what meditation practice is very much about. To actually bring that interest and that attention to our life is the fundamentally transforming element. There's a poem by a Chinese poet, Wu Men. He once wrote, Ten thousand flowers 
in spring, a cool breeze in summer, the moon in autumn, snow in winter. If your mind is not clouded with unnecessary things, then this is the best season of your life. It's so easy for us to live a life in which we are clouded, in which we are distracted, in which we are disconnected from where we actually are, from what's happening to us. And it can be that we kind of just accept that this is how it is, and this is how it will be. Because there really isn't that much of a model for anything else available in our sort of ordinary culture and society. And we can have the sense of really being lost in our lives. We wonder why that might be. We wonder about the meaning, the direction, the sense of fulfillment that we look for, that we yearn for. And sometimes we kind of look somewhere else in seeking for that. But we actually are asked in meditation practice to look into the heart of where we are. Ajahn Buddhadasa, great uh, meditation master and dharma teacher from Thailand who lived in the last century, was once asked, how would you describe the world? <coughs> he replied using just three words. He said, lost in thought. Lost in thought. And again, uh, if we take a little time to reflect on our day or our meditations, we can perhaps relate to that expression. And if we think about our lives, how much time do we spend lost in thought? How much time do we spend disconnected from where we are? And it can seem that we find so many things to blame externally and others or situations in the world or in ourselves, our past, our personality, our body, whatever that we think is somehow the problem in our lives. But actually it's really much more a question of knowing where we are. And our lack of doing that, our lack of that recognition that is the issue. And taking responsibility for that reality. The story I like to tell of a um, businessman who was driving out into the country from the city where he lived and worked to an important meeting. And um, it was very important. He was expecting to make a lot of money and uh, prestige from successfully concluding this a big deal. But unfortunately, in his hurry, he had managed to lose his way when driving around the small country roads. Uh, probably not that dissimilar from the lanes here, and a few of you I know arrived a little late, and hopefully that wasn't to do with the, uh, the local lanes. But anyway, he was driving, looking, trying to find out where he was, and he saw a farmer working in the field, so he stopped, and he, he got out and he called out to the farmer, excuse me, could you tell me where's the, uh, where's the road to the... Uh, the town of Bramblehurst. And uh, the farmer said, well, I've heard of it, but I don't really know where the road is. He said, well, can you tell me what's the name of this road so I can find it on my satellite navigation system? This doesn't seem to be working well. He said, I just don't, I don't think this road has a name, sorry. Well, what's, what's the best way to get onto a major road from here? And the farmer said, I don't really know. I just live around the corner. I don't have to go to the town very often. 
And the businessman's getting rather upset and irate and worried because he's late. He says, you don't really seem to know very much at all, do you? The farmer smiles at him and says, well, that may be true, but I'm not lost. (laughs) It's really easy to see all the conditions and the causes and the reasons for how our life is the way that it is. And a lot of them we can tend to attribute to things that are outside of our control. And there's a certain legitimacy and truth in that. But there's an element of the responsibility which is actually our own. Not to say that we need to blame or judge ourselves at all for the degree to which our life is unconscious. But to actually take responsibility for our life means to recognize that if we wish to really make a difference in how we experience our life and how we can contribute to this world, we need to become more conscious. We need to be awake. And this process of becoming awake, of rediscovering that capacity, of deepening and strengthening it, is essentially what we're engaged in. And in doing so, we come up against our mind, against the the habit and tendency of the mind to be lost, to be drawn into thinking about past and future, to be pulled by desire for pleasant experience, to be pushed and repelled by fear of unpleasant or difficult experience. To see how it's not an accident. There's no random events going on in our minds. There's a process that unfolds, that occurs, that we can learn to understand and actually do not need to consent to being a prisoner of. So much of our time we want one experience. We want a particular thing to happen. Or we don't want a particular thing to happen. And this defines how we engage with our life, our activity, so much that is driven by seeking to gain what we want, seeking to get rid of that which we don't want. And there's a a certain way and degree to which this is useful and appropriate, but it also has its profound limits. When we are here on retreat, there's not that many avenues for us to explore this. We, we can't really get a lot of things. We can't get rid of that many things either because the situation is actually quite intentionally set up that way. Food comes at a certain time and it is what it is. The temperature or the uh, heating system comes on, goes off. It, apparently it seems sometimes random times, although a lot of thought and care goes into it, I can assure you. But it doesn't mean that it's necessarily warm when it, we want it to be warm. Sometimes it's warm. Sometimes it's cold. Sometimes it's too warm and we're uncomfortable in the heat, having spent some time earlier wishing it would get warmer, only to discover that when it did, it wasn't actually that much better because we were just drowsy and falling asleep. If we always look at our lives from the point of view of wanting it to be different, wanting it to be better, wanting it to be other than as it is, we find our mind filled, pressured and fragmented. And this is often what we encounter when we first come to meditation, when we sit down. Or perhaps even when we've been doing it for plenty of time, we still encounter our mind in this condition, quite often. To actually acknowledge that this is so, if this is so. To see, what's going on here? It's like this sense of looking for something else, wanting something else. Wanting our experience to be different, wanting ourselves to be different. It's relentless. It goes on and on and on. And it's almost like we're in autopilot. 
like there's a sense that there's something missing, there's something wrong with me or with my life that I have to fix, that I have to solve, <coughs> that I have to repair. And it kind of keeps it, it keeps us focused outwardly, looking, looking for something, looking for somewhere, some place, some person, or someone for ourselves to become. Trying to figure out what that should be and how we should get there. So we then become very concerned and interested with the past because the past seems to be where we're going to find out how we get to that future. We look in the past looking for answers. We look into the future filled with hope or fear. And yet all of that takes us away from where we are. It's exhausting. It's really tiring. I don't know if any of you found yourself drowsy at all while sitting there meditating. It's not, you know, unusual that people at times nodding off. And you think, oh, it's because I had to get up early. Well, okay, so you did maybe get up a little bit earlier than you used to. But actually, what have you done all day? No. Pretty gentle sort of yoga, but sort of, sort of, sort of, a bit more sort of energetic at the beginning to bring some warmth, but pretty relaxing, pretty inner focused. Sitting sort of pretty casually, I guess you could say. Look too formal in here. Sitting on a soft cushion, going for a little walk back. I mean, if you told your friends at home what you did, how tired you were by 7.30, you know, they'd say, what? You sat on a relatively comfortable cushion, it was pretty soft, for 45 minutes and did nothing, and you walked back and forth over a 10 yards, slowly, and you had a cup of tea, and you're tired, what happened? We might ask ourselves the same question, what happened? Well, although our body didn't do all that much, often our mind has been busy, 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 hasn't it? And not only that, but there's two whole levels of that business. There's one level of busyness of the mind that just does what it does. It seems sometimes frantically, flat out, enthusiastically, or with some sort of sense of, well, I'm not sure I really want to do this, but here we go. All those different ways. And then there can be this other whole level of a sense of, I shouldn't be doing now, I'm supposed to meditate. I came here to be peaceful. Why doesn't my mind be quiet? I've got all the right conditions, I've come to the right place, I'm doing the right thing. What's wrong? <coughs> and we kind of start getting into more thinking about our thinking or worrying about the fact that our mind isn't quiet wondering if it will be so what do we do with all this if we see that that's much of how our mind is when we're here what goes on here on the retreat is really not different than what goes on in your life the weariness of that incessant busyness of mind is part of the weariness of our life the pressure pressure, the stress, the tiredness of our lives. And we see it here. What's different here is that we see it, because we stop. We don't act it out. We don't just follow all those impulses to go and get one of those, or have some of these, or avoid that particular thing that we don't like. We choose quite consciously, and a certain amount of the form supports us on that, to just stay here in the face of all that. And so we start to see it. It's a little uncomfortable to begin with. It's intentional that we see it, and it's a little stark or even harsh. It's not uncomfortable, it's not intentional that it's uncomfortable because there's some particular value in being uncomfortable, but because it's important to see that that underlying unease, or even dis-ease we could say, can actually be the, the kind of the undercurrent of our life if we don't recognize it and address it. And this is not something that's just some esoteric Buddhist teaching from the 
far east and designed for sort of uh, someone who's, as I mentioned the other last night, um, you know, people who want to sort of go and live in caves or on top of mountains in solitude for years on end with shaven heads and wearing sort of ragged clothes. It's actually for, for people like us to look. And it's, it's something that's equally found within our own culture. The wisdom that is here is not something esoteric. There's a, um, a kind of fond memory I have of a little, I mean, sort of little, sort of sweet, smart sort of sayings that you, um, sometimes encounter on little posters that used to be in the kitchen of one of my neighbours at home. They had a picture of a little girl with a bonnet and a little basket and some flowers. And, um, it said, and you've probably heard, all, all heard this before, don't worry, don't hurry, and don't forget to smell the flowers. So simple, I mean, it's almost too simple, it's almost sickening and so simple and sweet, you know. We tend to kind of bounce off that kind of thing without just stopping and listening. You know, we might think we have to find some great teacher in, um, in Tibet to, to find wisdom, but actually, in simple places like that, it's there. Don't worry. How much of our life do we spend caught up in fear and anxiety? How much stress and pressure do we place upon ourselves worrying about things that we cannot control or predict but might happen? Because the future is unknown and it's true, anything could happen. But the suffering of spending our time caught up in that. Have we reflected on this? Mark Twain once said, obviously having reflected on it himself, he once said, Almost all of the worst experiences of my life never actually happen. <laughs> but the worst experiences are the worrying about the fact that they might. And we know that, we recognise it. But we seem caught in that habit, that pattern. We worry, we're anxious. We don't quite know how to step out of it. We think that if I can fix and control everything, then I won't have to worry. If I can just get it the way it should be, then I won't have to worry. And then, of course, we have to hurry because there's so much to do, there's so much to worry about, there's so much we can't predict, we can't control, we don't know. Because basically the future is vast. And all the things that might happen in it that we wouldn't like to happen, how are we going to stop them happening? It's a big job. No wonder we're busy. <laughs> and there's a whole world out there to sort out. And yet, unfortunately, the world isn't all that amenable to our particular preferences and choices. Have you noticed that? You know, it would be great if the world would be the way we wanted. We probably wouldn't be coming here on retreat. We'd be sort of relaxed and thinking, ah, oh, how nice. But if you just try to get one person to be the way you want them, have you tried that? <laughs> I don't know if you have, but if you ever do, you're probably going to find that it's really hard and it doesn't work. And in the end, you probably end up less happy than you were when you started trying. Not just one other person. What about yourself? Have you ever noticed what it's like trying to get yourself to be in a certain way? trying to make yourself be a certain thing putting pressure on yourself to be different than you are without abandoning what can be a legitimate and appropriate aspiration for change and transformation the way we go about it often is born out of fear and anxiety that if I don't change it's going to be like this forever or it's going to be a problem and, and then a sense of hurry and a sense of pressure and a sense of harshness or hardness that we relate to ourselves from, that doesn't actually really make the difference for us. It doesn't actually transform our life. 
And because we're so busy trying to change others, trying to change the world, so worried about what may happen in the future that we cannot predict or control, we miss life's sweetness. We rush past the flowers because we don't have time to stop and smell them. What difference is that going to make? We don't even notice them half the time. When we come on retreat, we perhaps start to notice things a little more. We perhaps start to allow things in. It's not to say that in the walking meditation you have to get down and sniff all the flowers, but you might. It's more that when we actually release ourselves from the pressure of anxiety and rushing through our life, quite naturally our life can cut down. And we can start to receive the nourishment that is actually there, which we miss when we're not present for it, when we're not connected, when we're living in our mind. Because satisfaction is not found in that condition of living in our mind. And what is important for us? What do we truly value? What matters in your life? There's the old sort of saying of that something like nobody ever lay on their deathbed wishing they'd spent more time in the office. And yet when we look at how we live our lives, so much of it is given to that so materially oriented world. The world of production and consumption. The world of pursuing things. And yet as I've been suggesting, that attempt to pursue experience, to get experiences. This is really the, the worldly way of living, the materially oriented way of living. It requires us to be able to control things. It would work, it would be great if we could control things, but we can't. We can't control our mind. Have you noticed? You sit down, give it a gentle suggestion, but just be present. Pay attention to the breath. Does it do it? Does it pay attention to the breath? I mean, it's not that complicated, isn't it? Just sit here and pay attention to the breath. It's not a particularly nasty thing to do to yourself. And yet the mind doesn't do it. You think, it's got a mind of its own. And it has. It's actually teaching us something really important. The mind is not in our control. And as such, it is not our mind in the way we think it is. Because if it was our mind, it would do what we told it to. That's the definition of it being ours. We can do it what, tell it to do what we want. The thinking process is not in our control. Our body's not in our control. We can see that. It gets uncomfortable. It doesn't always bend the way we want it to. It doesn't always feel at ease. We can't just decide to be comfortable. I mean, who came to the retreat thinking, what I'd really like to do is experience discomfort? <laughs> not me. And yet, that's what happens sometimes. The body becomes stiff or tight. And it's saying something to us. Think things so close to us, our body and mind. We can't make them do what we want them to. So does it make sense to look at our life as something we have to somehow control? To struggle against it? What's really important, what really matters, is actually the cultivation of the heart and mind, the development of wisdom and compassion for the transformation of our own lives and the lives of others, for the welfare 
of the world and all within it. This is actually what brings satisfaction. This is actually what brings well-being. And this is really what we're engaged in here. To step away from the pursuit of things, from the idea that getting something or somewhere other than where we are is what we need to do. To actually come back, to find our way home. And to know for ourselves that in this rediscovery of our own true home, what we were looking for in that busyness, in that anxiety, in that pressure, is actually already with us. Just not yet realized, not yet discovered. When I was a, uh, a teenager growing up in New Zealand, as I did in the country, there were many forms of entertainment for uh, young, young men. And uh, basically what we did for a social activity was go to the pub. And uh, probably not so uncommon here as well. So we would go to the pub and we'd talk about uh, what a great time we had the last time we went to the pub. <laughs> and we'd talk about what a great time we were going to have the next time we went to the pub. Then after a little while we'd think, hmm, should we go to the other pub? So we go to the other pub. And then we talk about what a good time we had at the pub we just left. Or the pub we might go to next time. At some point, I feel very thankful, at some point I realised that actually we spent a lot of time talking about what a great time we had the other time or the next time. But actually what we were doing wasn't that much fun. I wasn't actually being nourished or satisfied by it. And yet that sense of, but the next one, the next one, that will do it. That's samsara. That's what in the Buddhist teaching is this process of constantly seeking for something else, constantly looking somewhere else, constantly being drawn out of where we are towards something. And yet even when we get it and when we find it, not realizing that it hasn't done for us what we thought it would, but being immediately drawn into looking for the next thing. We can live, we can live our whole life our whole life this way. We come to the end, look back and think, what was that all about? Because we do need to remember that this is not forever, this life. This is something remarkable, mysterious and precious, this existence that we have. And this remarkable capacity to be conscious, to be awake, that we so easily squander, we so easily undervalue and just don't make the effort. If we truly remember that our life is not forever, how would we live? What would we, what would we do? What would we really want to give our attention to? I mean, sometimes we're sitting in meditation, you know, even though it doesn't quite seem to make sense, we're drowsy, we're tired. Sometimes it's because perhaps in our life we're living, what we could say we're living in energy debt. I'm overdraft energetically, constantly charging up against resources that we don't actually have. So that we actually arrive here and there isn't so much demand, there isn't so much pressure and it's like we almost collapse into the space at one level, we just kind of And it's fine, it's okay that sometimes we need a bit of extra time and space to recover. But to really think about what that means if we need to recover from our life. 
Because it means the way we're living isn't sustainable for us. Perhaps isn't healthy. And it can also be because simply being present means having to face that reality. And at some level we don't want to. At some level we'd rather be unconscious. Because it seems like it's easier. But actually it's not. To live unconsciously is actually deeply painful. And I think we know this. I think we understand this. But it's such an effort to be awake. It's not easy, is it? To actually be conscious and connect. Be present. It seems to take time and a lot of courage <coughs> and wholeheartedness to sustain this process. And to really be gentle and patient with yourself in the process, because it is one that takes time. Not just time within the context of a retreat, but times within our lives. And it, there are times when it seems to move more easily in time when it can seem difficult, or we might even feel that we're backsliding, that we're slipping, we're losing ground. But so long as we actually have a sustained intention, that's actually the the lodestone, that's actually the guiding light of what's going on, of what we're doing. To actually be awake in our life and in our retreat here, it does require an effort from us but not an effort to make something particular happen. The effort is to notice what is happening, to open to what is happening when we might otherwise seek to close, withdraw from it, or reject it. So we're actually training not just our mind, but our heart. Learning to actually connect, to pay attention. This is the training. And it's a little bit like training a puppy. If you had a puppy, and for a puppy to live in this world of human beings, it needs to be trained need to understand certain things. So if we were training a puppy, we might teach it to, to heal, to follow behind us. And if we just take the puppy and put it behind us and we say, heal, what does the puppy do the first time you do that? You ever trained a small dog? Puppy wanders off. Doesn't follow your heel. Why should it? Goes off to smell the flowers or chase the butterfly or pee on a stone. And so you see the puppy's walked off, you bring it back and you say again, heal. If you keep doing that, eventually the puppy will actually follow you around. It'll learn that this is the place to come when it's invited to heal. If you bring it back with friendliness and gentleness. If every time it wanders off, you say, you bad dog, and you hit it. Don't wander off, I said, heal. And bring it back. What happens? Pretty soon the puppy decides, it's not safe around here, I'm getting out of here, the first chance I've got. And that's our mind sometimes. Our mind, we're so used to being hard on ourselves that the mind actually doesn't want to be here. It wants to be somewhere else. Because we're so judgmental, we're so critical, so harsh on ourselves. To actually have a clear intention to be connected, to come back, to be present. And yet within that, a real spirit of kindness, of care for our lives. Our practice has to come from a sense of caring for our lives. Because why else would we be doing this? If we didn't care for our lives. I think we know that. And yet often we think the way, or we believe that somewhere else, the way to care for our life is to kind of be tough and hard on ourselves. And this message is often very strongly reinforced in our culture, where we always have to be better than we are, different than we are. And it's not easy for us to actually just open our heart to our life as it is. And yet just connecting with this aspiration connecting with this aspiration to live well, that the actual goodness of our life 
is something we need to remember and come back to again and again. <coughs> the goodness of our wish for well-being, mm. our wish for peace or happiness, however we might describe it. And yet, equally we need to recognize if we don't understand how to bring that about. This is what we must make our priority. And the process of meditation, of being on retreat as we are here together, it's one of looking to see, well, what actually serves my life? What actually contributes to being nourished? To feeling fulfilled? To having a sense of wholeheartedness? And what we start to understand, what we start to see as we practice is that it's not so much the particular things that are happening. They're not in our control. We have thoughts, we have feelings, we have discomfort in the body, perhaps there's pleasure in the body, perhaps we feel bright, perhaps we feel drowsy. There are sounds, there are all sorts of things that go on. But they in themselves are not the most important thing. What's more important is the quality of attention we give to them. And it's this quality of attention that we learn to cultivate. A quality of collectedness, of focus, that we develop through just attending to the breath, through attending to the step, through attending to the inner experience of the posture that we're in, in the yoga, in the activities of our day. That sense of simply focusing and connecting. Although it might at first seem like it's really hard, over time it actually strengthens, it deepens. And a quality of, of allowing that receives what is occurring, that allows us to come close to it because we're not judging it. We're not saying my breath should be different than this. My mind should shut up, stop chattering. Or my body should be at ease. Or my posture should be more open. Of course, we might seek to cultivate those qualities. But not from a place of judgment or demand. I think it's just allowing ourselves to be. Making space for those places where we get lost without becoming a victim of that tendency, without giving our consent to its continuance. So when we realise we're lost, very clearly coming back, beginning again. Not indulging, but nor yet seeking to somehow chastise ourselves for the times when we do find ourselves becoming lost. And a quality of interest, of curiosity, to see, well, what's happening here? Because it's this process of being interested in our life, born out of caring for it, and a willingness to actually inhabit it wholeheartedly. To inhabit a moment as wholeheartedly as we might be present to something we really enjoy. When we enjoy, when we have pleasant experiences, it's not the fact that they're pleasant that's so nourishing for us. It's the fact that they actually are places where it's easy for us to connect wholeheartedly. But it's that quality of connection that really makes the difference. And the remarkable, even <coughs> magical discovery of meditation is that we can learn to connect with each experience, with all experiences, whether they be pleasant or unpleasant, whether they be that which we like or don't like. We can actually learn to meet and connect with them all. And in that process of connection, we actually find our way back to our heart, to our life and to the depths of our being, which we abandon unconsciously and yet tragically 
we abandon in the in the process of becoming lost mm-hmm. in our mind. Coming back to that connection, learning to let things be as they are. So we have a certain aspiration, a certain direction of what we're cultivating. A focus, connection, openness, interest. And yet those times when that's not happening, also making space for that too. This is actually the most powerful way we can care for our own well-being. To care for our life through opening to it consciously, through meeting it, through receiving the lessons it has to teach us. Because our life is a teaching, the perhaps most important teaching we can and ever will have. To actually trust it as that, rather than thinking somehow it's wrong or should be other than as it is. To trust that there's something in this that we are invited to learn, to learn from. And this is really the shift that transforms our life. Rather than looking to life, what can I get out of it? How can I make it the way I want it? Looking more, what can I learn from this? And what can I give to it? Because the quality of our presence, the quality of attention, the being, that simple beingness, it isn't about doing or achieving or results, but it's just about wholehearted connection and care. This actually is what is the source of the quality of our life. The source of the nourishment that we experience from our life. And its absence is the root of the lack of those things. So practice can be challenging, it's not easy. Of course we recognize that. But that's simply because life also is challenging. Life is not always easy either. And this is our life. This isn't something different than that. It's not a sort of a, a recipe for escaping to some sort of sort of heavenly cloud realm where we just sort of float around drinking nectar and ambrosia. It'd be nice. We don't put that on the uh, sort of the, the meditation sort of descriptions in the brochure. You know, come along here and it's going to be just as difficult as everything else. Because people might think, oh, why should I go there? But actually, there'd be something really good if we did. Because it's like we always have to give up on the idea that there's somewhere else to go. In order to really find ourselves where we are. And to find where we are. To find the resources of heart and mind to deepen and strengthen our, our being. This is really the invitation, the opportunity that we have here. And as we, as we go through the day, so it may not seem so close to much of our experience, we really start to find that there's a natural harmony in our life and in life itself. When we actually give our attention, give our care, give our energy to that process of connecting with what is and trusting that that connection will be the basis of the transformation that we think that we don't have to make it happen that we don't have to do it that it's really not like that it is in fact life's own intelligence that is transforming 
And our practice is to reconnect with that, within our own life, within our own being. To learn the wisdom that transforms suffering, that transforms suffering in our life and that can touch and transform the suffering of this world. This is what Dharma teachings and practices are concerned with. And this is what truly matters. So could we just sit quietly for a moment or two please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.